0: Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876.
1: Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest today is Alison Stockham talking about her debut novel, The Cuckoo Sister. We'll also hear from historian and biographer Midge Gillies on her latest book, Piccadilly, The Circus at the Heart of London. And Silvana Tomaselli chats about her new book on the feminist thinker and campaigner, Mary Wollstonecraft. Alison, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment. But first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, I know you as a general bookie person around Cambridge. You're, you're always tweeting about books, etc. And your background, I only just found out researching this, that you used to work in film and drama and documentary.
0: I did, yes. I started out at university, actually, where I studied history at Sheffield. And I was very involved with a the theatre company there. And I built a lot of sets for them. And then there was a a production company who needed a set builder for a music video at Sheffield City Hall. So I went down and I worked on that production and built them a set. Um, And then they were making a short film that they needed an art department person for. So I went along and did art department for that. And I got into various dramas through the art department, did some short films. But then discovered that with art department you, you're you there at the very beginning and you're there at the very end and in the middle I got a bit bored so I started helping out with production and it became clear that that was much more my thing and so I moved into production and then from drama into documentaries following in my dad's footsteps because he used to work at the BBC and yeah I spent 15 years working in in TV documentary for the BBC and various independent companies which was great but didn't fit too well with having children
1: (laughs) (laughs) no never does no and Um,
0: would we know some of the documentaries you've worked on yeah i'm going to date myself here because um i worked on what not to wear i did a historical series called ancient worlds which went out on bbc2 and bbc worldwide other programs like there was country house rescue for channel four the great treehouse challenge for sky so i worked on generally specialist factual and historical documentaries
1: And what about writing? Where did that fit into it? Were you always writing alongside that?
0: Yeah. Well, my mum actually found a a photograph from when I won a writing competition when I was at school. I was about 14. And then another one from when I was eight. So I've kind of always been writing and stories have always been something that I go back to. And I've always been writing throughout my career. Actually, while I was working in film drama, I trained in script editing because I wondered whether scripts and writing, that might be a way to tie in film production and writing. It turns out I'm far too impatient for script development because it can take years. But it's something that I've always done. I've I've got half-finished books in drawers. I wrote a terrible, terrible novel when I was about 15 that I'm glad will never see the light of day. Oh, we all wrote terrible novels at 15. Oh, just painful. (laughs) Um, So, yes, it's something that I've I've just always done. And then I spoke with a friend of mine who was doing Nino Romo in 2018, and she said you should do it and I had a significant birthday coming up and I just had this terror like if I don't write a book by the time I hit that birthday I just thought you know what maybe I'm never going to and that scared me more than the idea of sitting down to a blank page and that's book that eventually became... Book oh, so is this is a NaNoWriMo book. It is? Yeah. Although I will say of the 50,000 words I wrote in November, I cut 30,000 of them. But it's the beginning of it. But it's because it's the foundations beginning. are there. And it was really helpful because actually it got that perfectionism out of my head because I used to edit as I go and eventually I'd be like, this is terrible. I can't possibly continue. But with NaNoWriMo, you can't do that. You just have to keep writing, and keep writing. And then I thought, I'll see what I've got when I've finished. And when I had 50,000 words, that's like half a book. So I just thought, you know what, maybe I should just keep going with this draft that I know is terrible, but then I'll have something I can work with. And so I did so that I took the December off. And then in the January, I was like, right, I'm going to finish this book. And I did. And it's the first draft I've ever actually finished because I just kept going. And then I was like, okay. And then I started cutting significant chunks of it because it was terrible. But and here we are discussing it. as your debut I know. novel. That's exciting. And um, we're going to listen
1: to your first choice of music in just a moment. Is music important to you?
0: It is, although I struggle to write with music. So I have to either pick tracks that I know so well that they almost fade into the background. So I can write to Tori Amos because I know all the lyrics so well that they don't accidentally end up on the page. Or I can write to music that doesn't have words or in a foreign language. So I really love Christine and the Queens because it's all in French and I understand about a third of it. But yes, music has always been a big thing for me. Love it.
1: And Tori Amos, we'll hear a Tori Amos track later, but the first one (laughs) is Something Changed by Pulp. Why this one?
0: Well, Pulp... Very much, I'm a 90s indies child, and they were my favourite band then, and they've been my favourite band for a really long time. I love the storytelling of their songs. There's always a story behind it. You could almost take their lyrics and turn them into a short story, and there's always characterisation and there's a story arc. So it's quite literary, I guess, in a way, of their stories, but also they just do cracking tunes. I
2: wrote this song to us before we met.
1: That was Something Changed by Pulp, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Alison Stockham. Alison, as we've heard, trained with the script factory as a script editor working in film drama before moving into TV documentary production. Her debut novel, The Cuckoo Sister, was long listed for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize and is just out. Just out, Alison, so reviews few and far between. But already, I see,
0: it's an Amazon bestseller. You must be thrilled. I am really excited. The book was originally due to come out last year and then it got chosen as the first non-Amazon published Amazon first reads pick basically in the month before it goes on general publication it's available for amazon prime readers to download so i've been getting lots of reviews and comments and it's officially kind of out in the world although the the official publication date is the first of february so it's been really exciting to see how readers are reacting to it well i enjoyed it very much what's it about so the cuckoo system is about parenting about motherhood identity and it's also about sibling rivalry and um, it has its two main characters maggie and rose who are sisters and what happens when they start to tussle over maggie's children and why this subject
1: i mean this goes to quite a dark place as well so why this such why sibling rivalry and why the tussle over a family
0: it all started when i was looking at sisters because i have two daughters i don't have a sister i only have a brother I was just fascinated with the dynamic between sister and sister because it seems really quite different to sister and brother because my brother and I are competitive. But I think being sister to sister takes that to another level. And so I started looking at the dynamics of sisterhood. like my mum has a sister. My husband has two sisters. My brother is married to a woman who's got two sisters. My grandma was one of four. And I just started looking at that dynamic and I just found it really interesting. And I just thought, What would happen if you push that to the extreme? And then I had two books that I was working on and neither of them were really working. And one of them was about somebody who walked out of their life. And one of them was about somebody who kind of cuckooed into somebody else's life. Neither of them were right. And I distinctly remember cycling over Hills Road's bridge. And I suddenly realized that they were two halves of the same story. And so I put them together and then we had the cuckoo sister and being a parent and having spoken to lots of other parents, that really early years are very, very hard. They can be quite isolating. And if you don't have the support or even worse, you have people who are actively unsupportive, it can take you to some very dark places. I was lucky in the fact that I I don't think I had postnatal depression myself, although when I had my second child looking back at how it was with my first child. I'm not 100% convinced that that is true, actually, because the experiences were like night and day. But certainly a lot of people that I knew and friends of friends had a very dark experience with that. And again, I thought, what if I took that and pushed it to the extreme and then put those two together... And that's where the storyline came from.
1: Yes, and I don't think we're giving anything away to say that Maggie walks out of her life and her sister moves in. And it's quite bold, actually, to paint a picture of motherhood that's not the rosy, happy view that we're used to seeing in the glossy magazines
0: or in novels. I mean, she is really struggling and not enjoying it. And she questions whether she should be doing it at all. And it reminded me of a colleague who I thought was incredibly brave when we were chatting one day and she just said I love my children but if I had to do it again I wouldn't and it just made me think it's one of those things that you never know how it's going to be until you've done it and you can't undo it so again that was something that I was was looking into I do have to say that if I had the chance to have my children again I would (laughs) just put it on (laughs) just in case they're listening to them like (laughs) this is very much not my experience it's a collection of lots of different experiences from lots of people I've met the thing I like about it is I think over the course of the novel, it does show both elements of it, that it is both the hardest thing you'll ever do. Some people won't like it and it isn't for them, but also the thing that makes you strive to be the best person that you are and the thing that is possibly the best thing that you will ever do. And it, it's not black and white. Everything is very mixed. I, I
1: think. think anybody who's had children will recognise the kind of unending drudgery that you might get, the rounds of feeding and cleaning. And in this case with Maggie, she's given up a creative career and then to not find it satisfying It's got all the elements of leading up to somebody snapping.
0: It has, it has. And I think the fact that I wrote it having left television and not knowing where I was going to go next, I think that bit is an element of me, that I had stopped doing a very creative and interesting career and willingly so, but not knowing where I was going to channel that next and understanding the kind of well if I'm not that particularly a career that is very wrapped up in your identity to then not having that that question of like well if without that who am I yeah I definitely recognize that bit
1: and that constantly feeling judged I think a lot of women feel that that they are a failure because they're not living up to what we see in the
0: glossy magazines
1: of perfect houses and women looking immaculately dressed oh the,
0: the Instagram lie absolutely I think there's a line in the book, it's either in there or it wasn't there at one point, um, which is about the lives damaged by the word should. Expectation that everybody should have the same experience and they should it should be like this. When in reality, everybody's experience of parenthood and children is different and it should be different. Ooh, using the word should there. <laughs> uh, but also the fact that all these things going on, all the
1: practical things that you have to do, as well as the emotional thing, are going to put a marriage, a relationship under
0: strain as well. Mm, I think it's very much a common theme that you? you should never make a decision about your relationship within the first year of having children <laughs> um, because it's just about surviving, I think. I think that's one of the way I always say to people if you have your first birthday party for your child, realistically it's the first birthday party for the parents of having made it through that first year and everybody's still alive. Yeah, I think it puts an undoubted strain on a relationship when also your priorities have shifted, who comes first has shifted, Everyone's dropped in the deep end and not really sure what they're doing. And what kind of genre would you say this is? This was a really difficult one because I think it sits abroad too. So it's part psychological thriller and that's how it's being put forward on on the bookshelves because there is a genre for that. But I think it's also more of a family drama kind of domestic noir. So it kind of sits on that Leanne Moriarty line where it very much is, is a scene that people will recognise in their day-to-day life but it does have the dark elements and the twists and, and hopefully the, the pace that keeps you turning the page.
1: And it's not clear where it's set. You don't really say, and we're about to hear from Midge Gillies in a moment about Piccadilly. Is it set in your head? I mean, I could recognise bits of Cambridge in it. Was was that where in
0: your head it was set? Yes. yes. Yeah. So the, it's the kind of thing that if you know Cambridge, you will know that it's set here. But I didn't specifically say that it was Cambridge but the descriptions of, of the bus station and the hospital and roughly how long it takes on foot from one to the other and the route on the bus that Maggie gets on and that's I've checked that that the bus actually does go from one place to the other in fact in an edit I had to change that because they swapped the route in between edits so yes it is set in Cambridge in my head I can see very clearly and if anyone's been in Cambridge long enough they might notice the reference to Carrington's which sadly is no longer with us I loved that cafe
1: Well, let's move from Cambridge to Piccadilly, I'll say. Let's hear from Midge Gillies. Midge is the author of nine non-fiction books, including biographies of the pilot Amy Johnson and the musical star Mary Lloyd. A former Royal Literary Fund fellow at Magdalen College, Cambridge, she's now Academic Director for Creative Writing at the University of Cambridge Institute of Continuing Education. Piccadilly, the Circus at the Heart of London, came out late last year and explores the history of Piccadilly Circus. And when I met Midge, I started by asking her if she'd agree that this book appeared different to her previous books, which have been about people rather than
2: places. It's actually all about people. And it's about a place and what that means to different people and about a place that is a people's place. So it's a kind of biography of a place, but driven by the the stories that um, came out of that place. A lot of them stories that i don't think are well known and I've kind of come across in my research. So in the past, I've written biographies and I really like the idea of how we can structure true stories. So I think Piccadilly Circus was a really exciting challenge because, as you probably know, it's an interesting place in London and it's been described as... The um, Third mag- Magnetic Pole, it used to be said that if you waited there long enough, you'd come across everyone in the world you'd ever known. And people feel very nostalgic and warm about it. So soldiers would sing about it in songs and, and view it as home, even if they'd only visited there once. And you might think, what's a girl from the Fens doing writing <laughs> about Big Dilly Circus? But you know, I've lived in London or have in the past. And, and also my mum would always talk about Piccadilly Circus and the Lyons Tea Room and the cafes and shops and how she'd go to, to Lyons with her sister. And it was kind of an affordable place to go where women could be, go and be safe and all sorts of people could go and be safe. So the um, one of the first bigger Lyons Corner Houses was a place where gay men could go and feel comfortable. And I really like the idea of a place where you have so many different people milling around, and the idea that you could go as one person and almost emerge as another, or be a different person for one night, so the chance of danger and different experiences and and rubbing up against different people, even if that's looking in a a shop window. So I talk about technology, the new plate glass windows, and how they were really useful in that you could glance in a shop window and you might catch someone else's eye could be code and you could interpret whether they um, looked as if they might be interested in you whether you were of the same sex or someone who was perhaps what was known as a prostitute then so lots of kind of dangers and chances to be had as I say there's nowhere really quite like Piccadilly Circus And it's been a place for celebration from the siege of Mafeking in the Victorian period right through to beyond the pandemic. And last time I was there, I remember sitting watching the Scottish fans trying to climb up Eros, the the (laughs) statue there. And what is it then about that space? Because there are other
1: areas in London, indeed, in cities around the country. There's Trafalgar Square, there's Covent Garden.
2: What is it about that environment? It's on the edge of lots of different parts of London. So if you think about where it's situated, it's quite near Soho, which is quite kind of dangerous and uh, wicked things happened there in the past. And it's on the the edge of theatre land and films. It's also near Oxford Circus and indeed was a great shopping hub itself leading up to um, Regent's Park. But it does go to the more kind of sedate side of down to Trafalgar Square and then off down Piccadilly to Clubland. It's a place where lots of people and different types come together. And the underground in particular is somewhere that brought people from lots of different places. And often it was the first place that an immigrant to this country would have gone. I think it's just got something about it that makes it exciting and on the cusp of lots of different experiences.
1: I suppose you should just clarify what you're meaning by Piccadilly Circus. It is the plaza, if you like, that we think of.
2: Yes. So today we probably think of it with that huge, great digital screen, but then there are key buildings around it the Criterion, a restaurant as was, and still the underground theatre there, which is amazing. And then the fountain with Iris on it, which has actually moved around during its history. And then the past, there would have been Swananog at the department store. And then you've got the arches of the old fire building, and then the Regent Palace Hotel. And there are other places that have gone. So I talk about the Café de Paris. I also talk about the Rainbow Corner Club, which was a club for GIs during the war. I mean, it's also a state of mind. And again, like any biography, it's up to the biographer to choose where it begins and ends. So for me, that's Piccadilly Circus. So I could have branched off a bit further away from it. But to me, it's the, the hub, the idea of almost like a roulette wheel where people come in and they get held around and they they spin out in any direction that might take their fancy, really.
1: Yeah, we think about it as this very bustling, vibrant place. Has yeah. it always been like that?
2: Well, yes, it has. And the other place I didn't mention was the Pavilion. It was a theatre of varieties. Uh, Piccadilly Circus was created because of Shaftesbury Avenue. So in the beginning of the 1890s, Regent Street was very kind of elegant street. But when it became a circus, you had people coming in from lots of different parts of London. And I think that's what makes it unique.
1: So that word circus, what does that mean? Because we've got Oxford
2: Circus, Cambridge Circus, there's a few in London. It is literally the idea of going round because Piccadilly Circus has so many different roads coming off it. That's what makes it special because it it does kind of seep into different areas of London and, and London is a place that has so many different themes and flavours to it. Most big cities have somewhere like that and I would say the market square in Cambridge in a way is, is a bit like that because anywhere that you can come in to from a, a particular road that's quite different from the others is going to have a, a different feel to it. You might call it psychogeography in a sense. What do our memories tell us about that place and how does it change depending on the experience of people who've been there?
1: So as you say, it touches on the elegant areas, it touches on the maybe more saucy side of London as well. So all these people coming together, different classes, different backgrounds. Yes.
2: And it's witnessed so much. So I talked about the windows earlier on, but they were smashed by suffragettes. So it's got a violent past to it as well. There was a bombing there in the First World War, so Virginia Woolf writes about that seeing this huge crater in Piccadilly Circus and it being terrifying, and the the bright young things of the 1920s too. And it was somewhere where people came for a romantic weekend, or even in some cases very sadly to end their life, because it was somewhere that almost gave them the chance to be someone different for a short period of time.
1: And where did you start when you were researching somewhere like this?
2: This is a a really good lesson, perhaps, because I don't know if you've heard this term footstepping. So it's a term that Richard Holmes, the biographer, has used in that you actually follow in the footsteps of the place or the person you're writing about. So my husband, Jim Kelly, who's a crime writer, said, you must go to the Café de Paris, which was the first place I wanted to write about. It's a subterranean nightclub. And I said, stupidly, no, no, I'm not quite ready. I haven't done enough research. I will wait to go there. What could possibly stop me going to the Café de Paris? And then we have the pandemic. It's now closed. So I have lost my chance probably forever to go there. But in a sense, reading about people's experience of being there is much better. So Joyce Grenfell talks about what a glamorous place it was and how soldiers went there with their girlfriend to try and impress them. So I used the Imperial War Museum for lots of different oral history accounts. I went to the London Metropolitan Archives, particularly when I was writing about the Lions tea shops and corner houses. So there are lots of accounts by, they were known as nippies, the waitresses who nipped around the the tables and wore particular uniforms. And I did, when I was allowed to, I did, did a lot of walking and footstepping and just looking around and reading about the event and looking at photos of the area too and how it's changed.
1: And what was the most surprising thing that you found?
2: I suppose one of the, the, stories I got slightly obsessed with was at the turn of the last century so about 1903 there was a musical act called Frozo and his act was that you had to make him move pinch him or stick a a lit cigarette into him and he wouldn't move he was just like something that wasn't quite real there was a, a huge reward for making him move and he when he walked he walked in very rigid movements and he had different uniforms he wore and he appeared in a shop window and people flocked to see him. They had to call in the police because the crowd surged towards him and they thought the glass was going to shatter. They pulled the curtain down quickly. And while everyone was looking at the window, he just came out the back and crept away. So I loved that idea of someone just fooling crowds and being this strange creature. And then he was appeared with in court with the person who was managing director of Swan and Egg, at the department store, and even when he was in the dock, he was trying to get the judge to say whether he had been a, a real person or a doll, and trying to get the judge to go for the money that was the reward. So he was obviously a showman, and I, I love the fact that Piccadilly Circus has a place for someone like that.
1: Kind of a echoed now, actually, in Piccadilly Circus, isn't it? Because of those people who just stand frozen in position.
2: Exactly, they, um, the human statues. Exactly like that. I've, that's really clever of you to say that, because I've only. Just just realized that but it's exactly like that and people were kind of obsessed with it I also like the idea of shopping and how it changed within Piccadilly Circus and the idea of the shop girl and also boots so had their first 24-hour shop in Piccadilly Circus opposite where it is now and they claimed that they could get all sorts of things like an antidote in case you were bitten by a snake there was also a wonderful shop so Lily White's which is still there but when it first existed it was very kind of genteel and you could have handmade um, tennis rackets and crickets and they also had an artificial ski slope at the top so there are great photos of people in there kind of they didn't have proper ski clothes as we would know them now but you know a man with a smoking a pipe and wearing his kind of corduroy trousers glancing out the window at Piccadilly Circus while going down an artificial slope so it was a kind of place of artifice really and pretending and dreaming which I think is very appealing. And
1: Piccadilly, The Circus at the Heart of London by Midge Gillies is published by Two Roads. We're talking on Bookmark today to Alison Stockham about her novel, The Cuckoo Sisters. And Alison, Midge talking about footstepping there. You did a bit of footstepping yourself, I think, with your characters.
0: I did. I think it's really important to understand the mindset of your characters. And I think place can really help with that. Certainly in the areas where there is a, a specific location in the book, I walked them so that I could see what the surroundings were, get a feel for the atmosphere, if they're kind of little elements that you could pick up about things that you could see or hear or smell. I did a Faber Academy course where we did a whole session on senses to make a world real, to bring in all the different things that you might not necessarily think about, but that can really paint the picture well for your reader. And the other half of the Cuckoo Sister is set in Scotland. and I'm afraid I didn't get to go up to Scotland, partly because this was being written and edited during the pandemic where no one got to go anywhere. But I did go virtually. So I had a look on Google Maps and Google Images so that I could describe the coastline. And there's even one bit in the book where Maggie's talking about magpies and then I just had a thought because there are loads of magpies where I live there's a I live um, behind a park and there is a magpie rookery I'm not quite sure what the equivalent <laughs> is a magpieery. so there are like 20 or 30 magpies in the park all the time and then I just thought oh do they have magpies that are far up because it's quite the north west of Scotland so I googled it <laughs> just to check that there were magpies in that particular area and there are but not much further north which is one of the ridiculous random things that you find out when writing books. All this knowledge.
1: (laughs) And we're talking about the themes of the book. One of the themes, and it's a a massive question actually, is what makes a mother a good mother? Is it biological or is it somebody who cares for you? Mm. It's
0: one I find really interesting because the themes that I like to look at in my books are what does a family look like? Who is the mother is it somebody who is physically given birth to somebody or is it somebody who has been there and dealt with scraped knees and wiped noses and upsets and I really wanted to explore that in the book because both characters have a claim to the title of mother based on those two elements and I quite liked the tussle between those two because I think the answer is both of those things can make you a mother but neither of those things also necessarily make you a mother if pushed myself, I think I, I would come down more on the side of the person who does the nurturing is the mother. But then again, oh, do I know the answer? I'm not sure I do.
1: Well, I mean, it's the kind of to and fro of the novel, really. And as a reader, we're kind of switching sides a lot of the time. So it's told from Maggie's point of view and from Rose's point of view, from the two sisters' point of view. And then there are certain scenes where they're together. How did you decide whose point of view to be writing from in the scenes where Maggie and Rose are facing off each other?
0: Well That one was a discussion with my editor as to where the plot needed to go and how we needed to drive the plot forward. And some of them in subsequent edits were rewritten in the point of view of the other sister. And a couple of them were taken out because, like you said, the whole point ideally is that the reader switches allegiance throughout the book so in order to get that balance, we had to shift some of the points of view to make sure that there was that to and froing.
1: Well, we'll hear your second choice of music now. We heard uh, you mention her before. This is Tori Amos and Winter. Why this one?
0: This one, I love this song. It makes me cry every time. It's almost a conversation between Tori Amos and her father. And it's about believing in yourself and having that unconditional love for yourself that your parents have for you. Presumably that you're lucky enough. Not everybody is lucky enough. But it fitted quite well with the book about that relationship between parent and child. Uh, plus, it's just a really beautiful melody.
3: Snow can wait, I forgot my mittens Wipe my nose, get my new boots on
0: bookmark with lee chambers on cambridge 105 radio with heifer's bookshop the great cambridge bookseller since 1876
1: And we're talking on Bookmark today to Alison Stockham about her debut novel, The Cuckoo Sister. Alison, we've spoken about sibling relationships and marital relationships. There's also a lot in the novel about female friendships. There are various friends offering different kinds of support to Maggie in particular. That was obviously an area that you wanted to explore.
0: Yeah, I think I'm a great believer in building a village. And I am a huge fan, I suppose, of of female friendships, I think when you have good female friends, it's much easier in general. And I'm very lucky that throughout various stages in my life, I've always had a group of female friends who are very supportive and encouraging and kind of hold each other up. And that's what I really wanted to get across in the book is that that's one of the things that Maggie was missing. And then when she comes back, it's one of the things that she has gained and it helps her get the strength to come back. It's one of the things I feel really sorry for Rose for because Rose doesn't have that. Rose is one of those characters, you know, you kind of meet people who just don't have female friends and I think that can be quite a difficult place to be as well because it is such an important thing.
1: What's recognisable, I think, is the way the dynamic between the friends changes after the birth of children because obviously a new mother has less time, she's a bit more frazzled, And some friends step back during those early years
0: of parenthood. Mm, I think that can be a difficult thing to manage when good friends' lives go in slightly different directions. I do remember a friend of mine who has children a bit older than mine basically said, will hang on for those early years because it will all settle down again. And actually there are friendships that were a little more distant when my children were young that are now back to being closer again when everything is not quite all-encompassing about the children. That's something I wanted to bring into the book.
1: And does emphasise the lack of support that new mothers still don't get. And and actually new fathers, and you do talk about that as well, the pressure on the father as well to be the breadwinner that
0: even now when we know all these things still you're
1: more or less left to it
0: yeah I was very lucky to do what's called a baby calm course postnatal classes because you get prenatal classes you have your NCT classes you get them on the NHS and then they literally hand you a human being and send you out the doors and you have maybe one or two checkups with a home visitor and then that's it you're on your own and I'm just a bit like maybe there should be more post support And this course that I was lucky enough to do was really helpful about those very early years, the early days even. It's to do with the first 12 weeks after birth when you really have no idea what you're doing. I remember bringing my eldest home from the hospital and she's a December baby. So it was really cold in the house because neither of us had worked out that we should have put the heating on before we came back. And um, it was really cold and she just wouldn't stop crying because she had used to be being in the hospital where it's obscenely warm. And we spent the first few minutes looking at it going, what do we do? So I do think there absolutely needs to be more support for families, both mums and dads. And I, I would hope that the step towards potentially being more of a thing longer and for more fathers taking the shared leave. I hope that we're shifting in a better direction, although I am slightly cynical as to whether that is actually the case.
1: Well, let's hear now uh, from a woman who's written about a woman who would very much not approve of uh, the present circumstance for young mothers. Dr. Silvana Tomaselli is the Sir Harry Hinsley Lecturer in History and a Fellow of St. John's College, Cambridge. Her book on the feminist thinker, writer and campaigner Mary Wollstonecraft, Wollstonecraft Philosophy, Passion and Politics, came out last year. The Financial Times called it forensic and fascinating, and the spectator said of it, Thomas gives us an intimate portrait of the passionate, life loving woman behind The Public Moralist, a clever and humane book. And when I met Silvana, I started by asking her that given there are already many books about Mary Wollstonecraft, what made this one different?
3: What led me to write the book as I did was that Mary Wollstonecraft was a very critical. She was critical of the manners of her time, of the supposed morals of her time, of conception of history, of the Constitution, and, of course, of the condition of women. So, as I began writing the book, having written on the many aspects of her critique of her times, and society in particular, I thought, here we go again. And then I paused and realized that actually, after all these years of working on her, I didn't really know what she liked. I hadn't really come up with a view of the positive. So then the question was how to write about the things she liked, because they would, I thought, be piecemeal, you know, a bit of theater, Shakespeare, the countryside, and so on. So I then happened to think that the best way. Of approaching it would be to use the format of her own book on the education of daughters which consists of short essays on say the theatre dress all kinds of subject and so I proceeded asking myself did she like painting did she like music what was important to her how did she think about art and then the second part I thought Well, I'm not going to start again with all the things she criticised, but try to understand how she thought of the world and human beings. And noticed how important it was to her to emphasise that human beings were naturally benevolent. But then the question is, how is it that the world is such a mess? And so I looked for what it was that she thought made the world problematic.
1: So did you find out things you didn't know about her by writing this book?
3: Yes, I found out what may seem to some people very trivial, but wasn't to me. For example, what she says about walking. This was interesting to me because I have a colleague in Canada who's written about philosophy and walking. But I like walking myself, and of course it's a topic today, you know, we were encouraged to walk. I may have known that she didn't like cooking, but now I know for sure that she (laughs) didn't like cooking. Other little things, you know, one might expect of a feminist uh, reluctant to be Mrs. Godwin and have anything to do with the domestic part of marriage, let alone anything else. But actually in her letters you find that she's looking forward to this and, you know, dealing with linen and, and all of that. So she took pleasure in all kinds of things, the theatre and literature, particularly Shakespeare. And she has incidental things to say about people, Ireland, the French. So yes, I did learn a lot. A Vindication of
1: the Rights of Women, it's published in 1792 and still discussed today. I mean, she was just an amazing woman, a forward-thinking pioneer. It's a big question, this, but what made her that way? How did she get to be such
3: an extraordinary person? Well, character of her sisters, for example, she seems to have demonstrated the greatest strengths of character from an early age. Now, what made for that, I'm afraid I can't say. Her father drank, he maltreated Wollstonecraft's mother. He began relatively affluent, having inherited some property, but dissipated everything. And maybe it's the anger she felt. And also her older brother inherited a substantial amount of money from their grandfather. The combination of the way her father was, plus what irked her was the Male primogeniture, the fact that her elder brother ended up in a position which, quite apart from the fact that he was a man and therefore had access to education as a matter of course, which neither she nor her sister did, they were self taught. The combination then of the privilege of being the eldest son, plus, as I said, the domestic situation, I think made her angry and she tried, presumably, to understand the anger and that made her reflect on the condition of women. And what do you think she'd make of the situation we're in today? What do you think she'd make of the world today? I think she would have very mixed feelings. There would be a Wollstonecraft who would be pleased that you, a woman, you're a journalist, you're interviewing me. I'm a woman, I'm an academic, and we're both in Cambridge, at Cambridge. So there are things to be cheered about the world from, say, the condition of women. But of course, this is Cambridge. It's not Afghanistan. It's not Iran. So she would deplore the unevenness, and I'm convinced, really, that she would write about the condition of women. And indeed, peoples everywhere and deplored the inequality, the injustice. I can't imagine her being indifferent to that. That's just inconceivable. The other thing is just looking at the Western world, although because of the environmental concern, we're perhaps not so inclined to shop till we drop, but to the degree that we remain like that, she was a great critic of consumption. Of the idea that we think that the way to be in the world is to appear in a certain way, especially to compete through appearance, that would sadden her.
1: And did you get a sense of her as a person? If she'd come into this room now, would we like her? Would you like her?
3: It depends at which phase of her life. There was a time that she was... Well, rather anti-French, partly as a reaction to the events prior to the French Revolution. She was quite competitive, so I'm not sure she would have liked us. And of course, if somebody comes in the room and (laughs) has that, I'm the brightest, the smartest, the best thing, we probably wouldn't have reacted as well as we might. But people change, and as she grew in confidence, she probably was less competitive but you know she didn't have an easy life so you understand why she had a fighting spirit.
1: Is there anybody today who you can compare to her? She's such a kind of renaissance woman isn't she if that's an expression. Is there anybody who springs to mind who's a sort of contemporary version of her?
3: It's difficult because she was a woman of many parts and if you look at public figures, you tend to only know a part of them. You know, she was a, a travel writer, political journalist during the French Revolution. She was a pedagogue. She was a reviewer. She was a political theorist and a philosopher and a moralist. So it's difficult to combine all these things and then find them today because we live in specialized in grooves so it's difficult the other thing is you'd have to compare her to women who demonstrate great resilience because she did twice attempt suicide so it's not as though she was constantly on the upbeat she showed great strengths of character fortitude resilience but also and this is very rare she went over her views and revised them in the light of experience. She defends the French Revolution or the revolution in its early stages against Burke, the revolutionaries, the women who partook in the initial events. But then writing from France says, you know, actually things are not much better than they were. In fact, the new lot is far worse. That is admirable. Whether I could find all of this in one person i hope i'm sure there are such individuals but you'd have to know them rather intimately to uh, be able to answer your question
1: and wollstonecraft philosophy passion and politics by sylvana tomaselli is published by princeton university press we've been talking on bookmark today to alison stockham about her debut novel the cuckoo sister published by Boldwood books
0: alison what's
1: next for you then
0: well, I have a three-book deal with Boldwood, so I am currently editing book two, which um, does not yet have a title.
1: And we should say you're you're busy with your day job as well, I which am. is uh, with the Cambridge Literary Festival.
0: Yes, it's it's a great combination actually. So I spend almost all of my time working with books and writers. It's a great inspiration to work as the coordinator for the events for the literary festival um, alongside writing the books. It works really well.
1: Um, I mentioned at the beginning that this book was long listed for the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. What was the route to publication for you? Was it straightforward from there?
0: I feel like it might have been fairly straightforward when I kind of listened to some of some other writers' experiences. So I met Nell Andrews, one of the judges for the Lucy Cavendish of the Year that I was longlisted, at the Fiction Prize that they had run the previous year. And I had pitched the idea to her and she was great and very encouraging and that gave me the boost to keep going and finish the book. And then I submitted it to the Lucy Cavendish Award and and was longlisted. That happened in the January of 2020, and then I was sending it out to agents when, of course, lockdown hit. But then Marianne read it and approached me and said she'd really like to work with me on it to get it ready to go out to publication. Being on submission is an interesting process because you have to both forget about it, and yet it never quite leaves the back of your mind. And then I heard from Tara at Baldwood. We had a couple of meetings to check that we were on the same page, and she got the book completely And I say in the acknowledgements that somehow she made it a better book, a different book, but also brought it back to the original concept. Because Rose actually was was a lot nicer in some of the drafts because I can't help like her. I do like a good anti heroine. Like one of my (laughs) favourite books is Vanity Fair. Becky Sharp is awful, but she's great, right? So Tara helped me make Rose a bit meaner, basically. Then they offered me the three-book deal and, and that was that.
1: Congratulations. Look forward to reading book two.
0: And a question that we ask all our
1: featured guests on Bookmark. What are you reading at the moment?
0: I'm currently reading two things. I'm reading Regrets of the Dying by Georgina Skull. And that's really fascinating. She interviewed lots of people at the end of their lives, whether that be people in their elderly years or people who have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And although it says regrets, it's more about a guide to living well, which I'm just finding really interesting and I've just finished reading actually The Red Bird Sings by Eva FitzPatrick who won the Lucy Cavendish Prize the year I was longlisted and that is a beautiful novel it's a wonderful book
1: well we'll come back to you in just a moment for your last choice of music but a heads up our next show our featured guest get this Alison is Georgina Skull oh. talking- <laughs>
0: Oh, well, your readers are in for a treat. She's great. The book's really, it's fascinating.
1: Yes, talking about that book, Regrets of the Dying which I haven't started yet, but now I'm absolutely looking forward to. It. We'll also hear from Keith Miles and Jeff Tans talking about their book, The Two Dylans, a comparison of the lives and work of Bob Dylan and Dylan Thomas. And we'll be chatting with Maria Whelan, who's poet in residence at Homerton College. But we'll sign out now with your last choice of music, which is David Bowie and Queen, Under Pressure. Why this one? It was
0: Always going to be a boat track, one of the three. He is without doubt one of my favourite artists, partly because his music is so wonderful, but also just the sheer experimentalness of how he put music together and his constant pushing of the boundaries of what he was comfortable with. Sometimes while I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, there's this great quote where he was being interviewed and he just said, You should always be out in the water with just where your feet are only just touching the bottom. You just need to push yourself to the edges of where you're comfortable because if you're comfortable you're not doing it right but picking one david track is just beyond impossible and then i thought about this because every time it comes onto the radio or it plays um on on my music choices i have to listen to it again because it's just such a great track so yeah had to be this one
2: Bookmark with Lee
0: Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio.